Hello, and welcome to the interview at IU. My name is Caleb Wood. And I'm Henry Holloway. And together, we are bringing you this new experience from the IDS, where our main goal is to interview prominent people and intellectuals from around IU and who have connections to IU Bloomington. And we really hope to just bring you some new ideas, new perspectives, and just for you to learn a little bit more about the people who are related to the school that you probably go to. Our first guest today is Linda Greenhouse. She is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has written numerous articles and books on the Supreme Court. And we hope that you really enjoy this podcast. Uh, just to introduce ourselves again, my name is Caleb. I'm Henry. And our guest today is law professor Linda Greenhouse. Uh, she is a clinical lecturer in law and senior research scholar at Yale. Um, where she is currently the Distinguished Journalist in Resonance. Um, in addition to her outstanding legal career, she has won the 1998 Pulitzer Prize in Journalism for her coverage of the Supreme Court as a beat reporter for the New York Times, where she still writes as an opinion columnist. She's also a prolific author of several books, including many obviously on the Supreme Court, such as The U.S. Supreme Court, Very Short Introduction, The Burger Court and the Rise of Judicial Right, and the death of Ruth, Justice on the Brink, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the rise of Avon Coat Barrett, and 12 months that transformed the Supreme Court. So, uh, may I call you Professor Greenhouse? Uh, uh, yeah, you can, sure. All right. Uh, just for a little introduction, would you mind telling us a little bit about your um, career trajectory, how you got to the place you are today, obviously as a Ivy League law professor and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist? Okay, so I'll, I'll just amend that a bit. I'm not. I don't have the rank of professor. You could call me professor, but okay. But sorry. Uh, but yeah, law school gets <clears throat> is is quite jealous of people they've actually given tenure to. So okay. my teaching career at Yale is a second act for me. I was a journalist, working journalist for most of my career. I started on my college newspaper, just like you guys have done. I got a job as an intern at the New York Times when I graduated, and I just stuck around there and did various jobs, had various beats, uh, including local and state politics, which is a lot of fun. And then I got a chance to go on a fellowship for journalists at Yale Law School. Uh, the idea of that fellowship being uh, there should be more law literate journalists in the newsrooms of America. So the Ford Foundation had given Yale a chunk of money to uh, take journalists for a one-year law program. And after that, the New York Times sent me to Washington to cover the Supreme Court, which I then did for a whole long time, and uh, retired. And in my, quote, retirement, took my job at Yale Law School and continued to write. Uh, but this time, opinion pieces, not not straight journalism. Yeah, that's a really uh, that's really an amazing career trajectory. So, uh, so based on your coverage of the court, you know, as a beat reporter and then as a uh, as a columnist, uh, how would you say the Supreme Court? has changed over the years, over the terms, and uh, what direction do you think it's going to eventually end up going in? Well, it's certainly changed. It's become more polarized, more politicized. People are paying close, closer attention to it, which I think is a good thing. 
but when I started covering the court, you didn't really see factions on the court. You couldn't look at the court and say, oh, all the justices appointed by Republicans are on the conservative side of the street. All the justices appointed by Democrats are liberals. That wasn't true. Uh, some of the most liberal justices in recent history have been appointed by Republican presidents. But, but now I think a member of the public can look at the court and, and see a kind of reflection of our politics and, and the politicization of American society. And I think that's quite unfortunate. So where I think the court is ultimately going, I wish I knew, but where it's going in the near term is I think it's going to continue what it did in the last term, which is pursue an agenda that is not the country's agenda and project onto the country a set of results, whether it's abortion or the environment or guns or religion, that uh, makes the rest of the country, not every single person, I don't mean to overgeneralize, but polls tell us makes the country quite uneasy. And that's, there's a, a, the court has become a source of tension in our politics. Uh, yeah, I've, I think I've definitely viewed that too. Um, so despite the court becoming so polarizing, do you think over the years there have been any, um, I don't know, I guess positive changes, maybe anything that's changed for the better, or would you say it's all been completely polarizing in the eyes of the public and in your eyes? Well, I think one thing that's changed for the better doesn't really have to do with how the court is deciding cases, but rather um, there's a good deal more transparency now than there was when I started writing about the court. Uh, for instance, the court has a very user-friendly website, supremecourt.gov. And you can go on that website, you get all the briefs, you get the history of every case the court has undertaken to decide, you get uh, transcripts of the arguments within hours of the argument finishing, you get audio of the argument. Uh, right now, the court is live streaming its arguments wow. just so you can hear them in real time. All these kind of things have opened the court up to the public in a way that even 10 years ago would have seemed very surprising. So I think that's, that's a good thing because we as citizens have to engage with the Supreme Court and understand it and push back when we think it needs pushing back against and just be as informed as we can be about it. Yeah, that's, uh, those are all great points. So I, uh, so in terms of you speak of this, this Supreme Court as having sort of an agenda and it is much more like along ideological lines to decision making, even though there are like a lot of still a lot of eight, eight to one decisions uh, that are uh, on a less controversial issues. But in terms of like the agenda you speak of, uh, many would say, well, polling data in terms of Americans views shouldn't be reflected in how you interpret constitutional law. but. You could also say, of course, that the Supreme Court, like they didn't necessarily have to take the Dobbs, the Dobbs case. And by taking the Dobbs case and then making that decision, um, is that how you would say they're uh, pushing an agenda by taking because they didn't necessarily have to take the case in the first place? Well, so <clears throat> every Republican president, starting with Ronald Reagan in 1980, has run on a platform party platform adopted at the party convention 
that pledges that president to appoint justices who would overturn Roe against Wade. So, you know, the current justices who made up the majority who decided Dobbs, they weren't picked at random. They were picked for an agenda, and they embraced that agenda, and they carried it out uh, in the full knowledge that what they were about to do was going to be deeply unsettling to the country and was going to do a lot of people a lot of harm. I mean, how do I say, why, why do I say they, they knew that? So there was this very unusual leak of the majority opinion two months before the actual decision was issued. And during that time, it became clear, uh, not only that the public was very upset, but that half the country was gonna shut down access to abortion through either these trigger laws that would come back in action or the legislatures would act as here in Indiana. Uh, so the court well knew what it was doing and it did it anyway. Okay. Um, so you say the court um, has like always had kind of this agenda. So what made it, what made the Dobbs decision happen now rather than in the past? Because if there have been justices appointed since Reagan who have been trying to do this, is it only been now that they've been able to get enough support for this? Well, what made it happen now was uh, Ruth Ginsburg dying, RBG, dying and replaced uh, on the eve of the 2020 election by Amy Coney Barrett, who had uh, been famously um, a, a complete opponent of Roe versus Wade. I mean, to the extent that um, she, when before she became a judge, when she was a law professor at Notre Dame, she even signed a statement of a few other Notre Dame professors urging the university to withdraw an award they had given to then Vice President Joe Biden because he was pro-choice. Mm -hmm. and, and so she was so out there in her anti-abortion views that it's no surprise that within 18 months we got Dobbs. Right, that is, uh, because even if they are like leaving it, as they say in the opinion, delegating it to the people and their elected representatives, it's, they're essentially, you know, removing federal protections. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, even if, you know, their constitutional interpretation of it not being an implied right in the, by way of the 14th Amendment in terms of right to privacy is bound to be influenced by uh, the religious viewpoint as well. And uh, that is a great point, you know, that, uh, you know, how it is uh, not, in this, not in alignment with, uh, with uh, Americans' views. And uh, I guess I, your constitutional viewpoint as well, because, you know, the Constitution, you know, can be interpreted more broadly and uh, for sure, you know, as a living document. Um, well, well, Henry, if I could just give a little context, it might sure. be useful for for our listeners. So, uh, you know, the, the question of a constitutional right to abortion was not a new question for the court in 2022. Right. The, the thing we have to grapple with is that there had been a precedent on the books for almost half a century that recognized a constitutional right to abortion. Not only that, Roe versus Wade in 1973 was a seven to two decision. The seven in the majority included three 
of Richard Nixon, the very conservative Republican president, Richard Nixon's three appointees. And then the right to abortion was reaffirmed in 1992 in the Casey case, and all five justices in the majority of that decision were appointed by Republican presidents. So for Justice Alito to say, oh, Roe is egregious, quote, this is a quote, egregiously wrong from the beginning, kind of disregards not only the court's precedent, but his own predecessors. It is so dismissive of the hard work that the justices who came before him did in grappling with this question. It's just the most arrogant and high-handed uh, judicial behavior that I've ever seen. Yeah, and but and they, uh, well, their argument, I guess, was that Casey was decided on a, that it was a matter of uh, star decisis, and star decisis was not a was not enough to uh, to hold Roe in place, I guess, in terms of the Casey decision, and that was, I guess, their justification for the Casey decision being wrongly decided. I guess. Uh, yes, I mean, it's true that stare decisis, which is a Latin term that means uh, uh, to stand by that which has been decided, that's the rule of precedent, is not a phrase, it's not an inexorable command. And obviously, the court has overturned prior decisions, you know, many times, including <clears throat> some overturnings that we would all celebrate. The difference is when, when they've done that, well, two differences. One, when they've done that, they've given reasons. They've given actual reasons other than that, you know, we hate this and we're getting rid of it, which is basically what Dobbs comes, comes uh, down to. And also in the prior overturnings when it's come to individual rights, they've overturned decisions in order to grant more rights to interpret the Constitution more broadly. That's Brown against Board of Education, right? Here, for the first time, we have an overturning of precedent for the purpose of taking away rights. That's something the country has never seen. That's Supreme Court behavior we've never seen. And I think we have to understand it uh, in terms of the radical nature that it was as a, as a judicial act. Okay. So the Supreme Court, obviously, as an institution, is kind of built up um, in our republic, which, you know, is not technically true democracy, but at the same time, it makes so many decisions for us that it feels like that there should be some kind of input from the voters. So is there any way to rectify this in our modern day country? Could we make any changes to the court that could give um, us you know, individual substituents, more power? Well, again, I'll give a little context. So the kind of received wisdom from political science about the court uh, since the middle of the last century has been, you know, we don't have to worry too much about whether the court is going to diverge drastically from what the public wants out of the court because presidents uh, regularly get new appointments and these are confirmed in, in, in real time. And so necessarily those presidents and the senators who confirm their nominees are in touch with the temper of the times. And so the court is always infused with uh, modern ways of thinking about things. What happened in the Trump years is that here we had Donald Trump, 
who lost the popular vote, mm -hmm. did not represent a majority of the public, making these three appointments and get them getting confirmed. Once the filibuster was removed, Senator Mitch McConnell got rid of the filibuster. So the narrowest of all possible majorities and the senators, the Republican senators in those majorities, many of them from the smaller states, every state as you know gets two senators, didn't represent a majority of the public. And so that connection that political scientists have always found reassuring that the court is pretty much gonna stay in sync with what the public wants, that connection's been broken. And really, the court has been packed. You know, people talk about court packing. The court has been packed with three justices who don't represent what the country expects. So, you know, starting from that observation, I guess your question is, what can we do about it? Yeah, essentially. And um, there's not a lot of obvious things that we can do to change the current situation uh, right now. You know, people talk about, well, let's get rid of term limits. Okay, that wouldn't affect the current justices, obviously, and it would be a very difficult task given that, that our Constitution is the hardest Constitution in the world to amend. Uh, people talk about you know new appointments to the court, uh, so-called court expansion. Uh, I don't think that's much of a solution. It just invites invites us into an arms race. You know, one party expands it in one direction, the next party comes into power and expands it in the next direction. And I'm I'm not sure that that's for the good of the country. So, um, you know, I think we really have to focus our attention on electoral politics. Because I guess, as, as Henry said earlier, um, what the court did in Dobbs was not outlaw abortion, left abortion up to the states. So who are the states? Who are the state legislators who are passing these laws? That's, they're the ones who are directly accountable to the people. And I think if the people have something to say about it, the occasion is to say it through electoral politics. So for voters right now, especially considering the midterms are coming up, you would suggest if they want to see a change in the Supreme Court, or at least how their decisions affect states, focus on state elections. Yes, I mean, I think we, we are not in a position to change the court, but we are in a position to change the elected branches of government. And, uh, you know, President Biden gave a talk yesterday and he said, um, you know, if I get a Senate majority, if, if Democrats retain the Senate majority and, and hold the House, the number one bill I'm going to sign would be to codify Roe versus Wade, to codify the right to abortion. So he put it squarely. You know, it's up to, it, it's up to the elected politicians and the people who elect them to decide what's going to happen about that. Yeah, that is a really a good point, because even in a very conservative state like Kansas, by leaving it up to the people, you know, I, th I was a strong majority that voted to uh, permit uh, to permit access to abortion. Of course, it was interesting how President Biden said they showed the Supreme Court they're not going to stop them, as if to imply, you know, Supreme Court, you know, by the, leaving it up to the states that they're uh, strongly anti-choice, which I think is evident, but uh, sort of left out that key aspect, uh, you know, somewhat uh, that, that it was left up to the states by... Uh, it's a re-implication to an, to an extent, but it is interesting to think about. And even in Indiana, where we have a very, you know, abortion, there's a 
it's in it's in it's been contested and it's been at least delayed the uh, uh, ban on abortion. But uh, because we have such a conservative legislature, but then the even very conservative people who voted them in aren't entirely in a in favor of that at all. You know, because po- as polling data has showed, even in a very conservative state like Indiana. But I want to touch on a couple of things related to the Dobb decision, real quickly, which is a. Uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, would you say that he's more or less alone in terms of rolling back other rights like gay marriage with, you know, the Obergefell decision? And also, uh, how do you view, like, the role of uh, protest and uh, this sort of openly adversarial, you know, relationship with the court in terms of, like, there's laws against protesting, federal federal law against protesting outside justices' houses, and then you had the... Uh, uh, Attempted, not really an attempt, but almost a, a, a potential attempt on a on a Justice Kavanaugh's life. Uh, what would what is your view on the particularly the protests outside justices' homes? Oh, I I, I think that's a bad thing. I think it's counterproductive. Um, uh, it makes me very uneasy, and you know, obviously, I think it's you know beyond horrible to think of assassinating uh, justice because you don't like. What they're doing. I mean, it's you know it should, should be, you know, obviously um, a horrible thought. So uh, no, I have no problem at all with making justices' homes uh, a, a protest-free zone. Actually, um, uh, as to your earlier, the the beginning of your question about is Justice Thomas alone in saying that, you know, now that we've taken care of the right to abortion, we ought to train our sights on uh, the right to same-sex marriage and even the right to birth control. He's the only one who said that. He said that in a concurring opinion uh, with Dobbs that nobody else signed. I don't think that means he's alone, actually. Um, but also, I don't think it means that there's a majority on the court that would, that would go along with that. But he, you know, he, he's a disruptor. And he likes to send little smoke bombs up in the air. And that was certainly one, and it got people's attention. And actually, I think we should be kind of grateful that he said that because it underscores the stakes if the court pursues this path of uh, narrowing, narrowing, narrowing constitutional interpretation and uh, taking, taking away rights that people have come to depend on. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point because I remember Justice Gorsuch. He, uh, you know, conservatives uh, were uh, critical of him in a certain uh, case related to transgender rights, in which he, uh, in which his opinion concurred with the more liberal justices, which is also fascinating. But uh, so I guess to sort of uh, change course here in terms of upcoming cases regarding. Uh, Affirmative action. We've got, you know, uh, uh, these cases regarding Harvard University and the University of North Carolina in terms of uh, equity quotas, and you know that's a key issue with affirmative action and and uh, the constitutionality of certain aspects aspects of it. So, uh, what would you, uh, what insight would you uh, like to provide on those upcoming cases, and how do you view? Uh, What's that? What that's going to tell us about the court standing on the issue of affirmative action in relation to previous courts, especially in relation to universities? Uh, yeah. So, 
so this is another agenda item, and uh, judicial conservatives have been gunning for affirmative action uh, really for more than a generation since the Bakke decision in 1973 uh, upheld affirmative action uh, very narrowly, and then the Grutter decision from the University of Michigan Law School in 2003 uh, upheld affirmative action, and uh, there was a case from the University of Texas at Austin, the Fisher case, uh, the court had a couple of cracks at that, uh, that upheld affirmative action. So there's been a, a, a long history of this, but um, the justices who preserved affirmative action, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in the Michigan case, Justice Anthony Kennedy in the University of Texas case, they're gone. And they're replaced by people who really have an agenda to get rid of it. So I think, um, <clears throat> I think there's very little chance that affirmative action is going to survive in these cases, which are going to be argued um, on October 31st. Uh, I'll, I'll just amend, Henry, something that you said. These are, at issue, are not quotas. There are no quotas. Right. The Bakke decision in 1978 actually made it clear that uh, racial or ethnic quotas were unconstitutional. What these two universities do is consider race just as they consider, uh, you know, is this person an athlete? Is this person going to play in the orchestra? Um, is this person from a certain part of the country? Uh, that race is part of the full package by which the university evaluates the applicants. And it would be uh, very strange if the court said, okay, that's the one thing you can't look at. You, can't, you can look at all these other things because the Constitution doesn't speak to those other things. Uh, but the one thing you cannot consider is race. And if that's what we're going to be left with, uh, that's really going to pose quite a conundrum for, for universities. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, just change topics a little bit. Um, since we have a little bit of limited time left. Um, Supreme Court obviously has more time to hear more cases until 2023. Are there any specific cases that you think Americans should be watching right now that could seriously affect them in the future? Cases that are kind of bubbling up? <clears throat> yeah, essentially. Well, I think we're not done hearing about the way elections are conducted. Mm -hmm. And the court has held back from getting involved in all the post-election or I suppose post-election and pre-election litigation is going on now about um, rules for absentee ballots and um, that, that kind of thing. And I'd be really surprised if something like that didn't reach the court. I mean, the, the court has agreed to decide a case, very important case, which will be argued in December and it kind of overhangs all of this, which is a case that asked the court to adopt something called the independent state legislature theory, which is a kind of wackadoodle theory that came out of thin air, actually. There's no precedence wow. on it, uh, that holds that the Constitution gives state legislatures, and only state legislatures, the power to decide how their states are going to conduct federal elections, like how electors are going to be chosen by that state, and says that the state Supreme Courts have absolutely no role to play in that, that no matter how 
out of whack, out of line, the state legislatures may choose to go. The state Supreme Court has no voice. That's the theory. And if the court were to adopt that, um, that would just empower, embolden Republican-dominated state legislatures, especially in states with state Supreme Courts that skew, tend to skew a little more liberal, um, empower them to put up all kinds of uh, uh, obstacles and, and booby traps uh, in, in the electoral process. So that is definitely a case to watch. It's a case called Moore against Harper. It's going to be argued on December 7th. So that would be something like um, what I've heard about in cases like Florida recently, where it's been increasingly harder for minority or more Democratic voters to vote um, via mail and such. Yes, right? it, it could it could deal with uh, everything when it comes to federal elections. Wow. Harder to vote based on like how, how specifically? Um, I've, I've just heard that there's a general lack of education and, um, you know, they've been fighting against mail-in ballots, which is a big contention in the 2020 election, which right. obviously that's easier for a lot of middle class or working class people to do since not everyone can get off for election day. Right. And then, you know, right. Uh, Trump went on then to falsely claim he won the election. And, and there and was some mail-in yeah. vote. But thankfully, though, in the court didn't... Uh, didn't buy that, at least then. But uh, one thing I wanted to uh, quickly untouch on before we wrap up was uh, I was wondering about your viewpoint on there's been some controversy recently in terms of the rights of musical artists, uh, particularly with regard to hip hop, like the prominent hip hop artist Young Thug was uh, he's facing a RICO indictment over a gang related activity and uh there's dispute over whether or not, um, like California, they just, uh, I believe the governor just signed a law and uh, signed legislation to law regarding um, keeping, uh, making uh, song lyrics, music lyrics, inadmissible as evidence in court. Um, a lot of these uh, hip hop artists have cited uh, First Amendment violations. I don't know if there's a really a First Amendment violation, but just in terms of the principle of free speech, in terms of the case law, what would your, uh, what is your view on this issue? I, I have to confess I don't have a settled view on this issue. I mean, uh, if it gets into the realm of, of hate speech, because I know a lot of these lyrics that, uh, there, there was a case at the court a few years ago um, about whether uh, rap lyrics that um, kind of called for uh, killing somebody uh, was was protected speech, or whether it was a, a, a direct threat um, under a, a kind of the way we understand hate speech. In other words, not just a kind of um, abstract uh, sentiment, but a direct threat against a specifically identified person. And I think that would be the that would be the test. Um, I think somebody, I think the First Amendment would protect the right to just kind of spew off in a very vile, violent way. Um, but uh, if it comes down to, you know, I've got a target on your back and here's what I'm going to do to you, that's, that's something else that could be regarded as outside right. the First Amendment. But what about like, uh, like, 
like the reverse, like uh, admission of guilt or like the implication that you've uh, been involved in previous criminal activity? Well, I think that's not really a First Amendment question. I think that would be, um, you know, a kind of a free trial, fair trial issue. Um, and without seeing the specifics of such a case, I don't really have an informed view of it. Makes that sense. does make sense that it would be more of a fair trial, even if they're, you know, citing the First Amendment. It does, that does seem to, that it would be more of an issue because what somebody says is, could of course be admissible in some cases as evidence, but uh, thanks so much though. Yeah, um, I think we are out of time. So do you have anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Any words of wisdom, uh, advice, anything? Well, I'm not sure I have any words of wisdom, but my advice is uh, to pay attention to the court, to use the resources on the court's website that I mentioned, listen to the arguments, inform yourself, come to your own conclusions, because that's our job as citizens, to really be, be informed and care about what's happening um, and so that we can take the steps that we think are necessary to make things better. For sure, for sure. Okay. For sure, yeah. Well, that was Linda Greenhouse, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I found this conversation very interesting as someone who is more of a science major, not as much into politics. Uh, I found it very enlightening. Yeah, thanks so um, much. And this is Caleb and Henry signing off. Okay. All right. Well, we just heard from the Linda Greenhouse, and I thought that podcast went really well. What did you think, Henry? I thought it was a, a fantastic interview. I uh, loved the breadth of uh, topics we were able to cover, you know, on uh, on the uh, Dobbs decision, um, affirmative action, and just uh, her thorough knowledge of the court's history, you know, and recent history, particularly from reporting on it so long, is uh, it was it was uh, fascinating to gain such uh, expert insight and engage with it in real time. That was uh, a remarkable interview, and I hope our listeners uh, will be able to take away something meaningful from it as well. Yeah, I also found it fascinating. It was great to hear about from someone who's really had the experience in the field. Uh, I'm not a law student, so when I hear about issues in the Supreme Court, sometimes I don't feel like I'm as educated, but I'm glad I had the opportunity here to listen to someone who could really educate me on what's going on in the world right now. Yeah, for sure. And of course, especially considering, you know, all of the IU connections to so many of these prominent intellectuals, um, including Linda Greenhouse, of course, her daughter having gone to IU. Of course, Linda Greenhouse uh, gave the uh, 2016 uh, winter commencement speech here. So um, definitely through all of these IU connections, uh, uh, we hope to, uh, you know, this is the starting point for bringing our listeners a uh, a wide variety of uh, conversations from these uh, prominent public intellectuals like um, Linda Greenhouse. Awesome. Well, that is it for our interview at IU. So we hope you will join us next week where we have another guest coming. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>